Do me a courtesy, turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 to 18. That's where we'll be spending our time together this evening. Uh, If you've been around this ministry for any length of time, uh, one of the things that you'll notice is that we don't do retreats or camps. Uh, Maybe if you grew up in like middle school and high school ministry here at the church or anywhere else in any other church, uh, you have been to one of these camps. Maybe it's a weekend, maybe it's a week. Uh, We've done them before in the history of college and career, but we don't really do them anymore. Uh, I want to preface everything that I'm about to say by saying that there is nothing wrong with camps. They are not evil. They are not a sin. I just hate them. (laughs) I really, really don't like summer camp. And one of the reasons why I don't like summer camp is because it's always oriented around, like, games and this group of people is on the blue team, and these people are on the red team, and these people are on the orange team, and then you perform relay races to see which team wins, but you don't win anything at the end. Uh, it's, I, I'm losing in enough areas of my life that I don't need to spend $200 to lose at a relay race in some summer camp somewhere. Uh, so there, there's not a whole lot about camp that appeals to me. Maybe the Lord will change my heart on that. Uh, but for all of the bad that I feel is associated with camp, Uh, There are some good things. Like, I I don't want to pretend like there's not a a significant amount of good that comes from stepping away from the world for a period of time uh, to focus on things like prayer and the study of Scripture and worship and having uh, conversations about the things of God. There there is a colossal amount of growth that can be produced by this stepping back, uh, ascending the mountain, if you will, for a season. But the, the greatest strength of something like this is also its greatest weakness in many ways. Uh, Maybe you've been on like a short-term missions trip overseas, or maybe you've uh, been to a summer camp where you've had this significant emotional experience. There is an inevitable crash that comes after that, because real life is not like life on a missions team. Uh, Real life is not like life at a summer camp. There is this uh, jolting reality that happens when you come back into contact with reality, uh, rather than sort of the carefully crafted world of Christian camp. As, as Christians, we have to learn to live in the world as it is and not as we've manufactured it to be. And so for all of the good that camps and short-term mission trips can produce both here in our culture and abroad, uh, there is this jolting reality when we come back down the mountain. And this is the sort of thing that Elijah is about to experience. We've been walking through the book of 1 Kings together. Uh, and last week we saw Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal. Uh, He is on a mountain, quite literally, this mount called Carmel. Uh, And he proposes this to the people of Israel. You seem to want to worship this one God, but all, I think we should worship Yahweh. Let's have a showdown between our gods. We'll build two altars, we'll sacrifice two animals, we'll lay them out on this mountain, and whichever God answers by fire, that's the one that we'll serve. But all is silent. He doesn't hear the pleas of his priests. He doesn't answer at all, let alone with fire. But Yahweh does. And the people of Israel see that there's only one true God. And they say, the Lord is God. Nobody else, not this false idol that we've been worshiping. After that, Elijah uh, puts to death the prophets of Baal. Uh, these people who have brought death and famine to the nation of Israel are themselves put to death. And then land returns, or not land, land's already there. Rain returns to the nation of Israel. After three years of drought, it begins to rain again. And you would think that Elijah has finally gotten what he wants. You would think that Elijah would be rejoicing at this point. 
But as he comes down the mountain and comes back into contact with reality, he sees that things are not as he expected them to be. And that brings us to our text for the evening. Hear the word of the Lord, 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 4. It says this, Ahab told Jezebel, Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And then he was afraid. He arose, he ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So this is is the scenario in which we find ourselves. Uh, Elijah has come back down the mountain. Uh, Rain has begun in the land of Israel. You can kind of read the tail end of chapter 18 that we skipped over. It begins to rain again in the land. Ahab tells his wife Jezebel, uh, the text says, all that Elijah has done, which certainly makes it sound like he's left some crucial bits of information out. Um, He mentions specifically that Elijah has put to death the prophets of Baal. Uh, He mentions that the people of Israel aren't interested in worshiping her foreign god anymore. And she is furious with this. And so she sends a messenger to Elijah, and the messenger says, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. We're told he's afraid, he arose, and he ran for his life. This is is interesting, because if, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, or if you've been following along online in the podcast, Elijah's done a lot of traveling in the last few chapters. Uh, initially, he tells Ahab it's not going to rain. The word of God comes to him, and he is sent by the word of God out into the desert. He sits in the desert for a period of time until the brook that he's drinking from dries up, and then the word of God comes to him, and he goes to Zarephath. He spends three years in Zarephath living with this widow and her son until the word of God comes to him, and then he goes back to Israel. Again and again and again, Elijah is on the move, but he only moves in response to what God says. He, he, he never moves on his own. It's always the word of God Elijah arises, and then he moves somewhere else. But here's the difference. This is the first time Elijah has gone anywhere without God telling him to go first. Uh, There's a different messenger bringing a different word. Elijah moves not in response to the word of God, but in response to the threats of Jezebel. It's interesting. The, The text says that the messenger relayed her message to him, and he was afraid. The literal translation here is not he was afraid, but he saw which is interesting because Elijah's also done an awful lot of seeing over the last three chapters. Uh, He's seen rain withheld from the land. He's seen uh, how God has provided by feeding him through ravens. He's seen the flour and the oil in the widow's jar multiplied. He's seen the widow's son raised to life. He's seen God answer in fire. Everything that Elijah's seen, you would think, would cause him to have some confidence in God's ability to carry him. But somehow, in some way, in this moment, all he can see is the threat in front of him. And it causes him to react out of step with what God has called him to do. He can no longer see God's faithfulness. He can only see the danger that's in front of him. I would venture to say all of us, in some way, have particular people or places or circumstances that uh, come into our lives that cause us to forget ourselves. Uh, that cause us to act in ways that we know that we ought not to, and we tend to make excuses for these sort of realities. So take, for example, the uh, ridiculous category of being hangry 
I don't know if you've ever said this before to someone. Uh, I'm sorry I was rude to you. I was hangry. Actually, I think you're probably just a bad person if you're like that. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, it's not a good excuse, though. Le- legitimately, like we say, that this particular circumstance is such that I'm justified in being unkind to you. Uh, I'm hangry. Right? We, we use that as an excuse to explain how we act out of accordance with the way that we know we ought to. But it's, it's not just being hungry or hangry. Uh, it's, it's not just people, it's places, it's things. There's all these circumstances in life that can cause us to be forgetful, as Elijah was. Wisdom, it seems to me, is surrounding yourself with people who will call that out in you. Uh, wisdom, it seems, uh, is surrounding yourself with the sort of people who will remind you of the truths of God's character and his faithfulness, especially when you are most prone to forget those things. Uh, wisdom is being surrounded by people who know those weaknesses in you, where you have a tendency to be forgetful, uh, to see the problems in front of yourself and to fail to see the faithfulness of God. Wisdom is hearing and really hearing from people about God's faithfulness. But it doesn't seem that Elijah has anything like that in his life. And so he flees. He runs to Beersheba, we're told. And that means nothing to us necessarily because we're not experts in ancient geography, but that's about 150 miles to the south of Mount Carmel. Uh, this is a six-day journey. If you're walking, Elijah is probably running. He's running for his life. He's in fear that, that he's going to be put to death if everything he's heard from Jezebel's messenger is true. Uh, so he travels an exhaustive distance, and he comes to the wilderness, we're told in verse 4. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness after leaving his servant behind. And this is where Elijah reaches his absolute lowest. We don't know anything about his servant. We don't know what sort of a person the servant was, but he dismisses this individual and he says, I'm going the rest of the way by myself. And somewhere in the desert near Beersheba, under a broom tree, he asks God to take his life from him. You know, despair is a complicated issue. Uh, Depression is multifaceted. Uh, It's never or almost never, rooted in just one thing. Uh, It almost never flows from just one stream. Uh, But there's all sorts of circumstances, both external and internal, that sort of conspire against us when we find ourselves in these seasons. You'll notice in Elijah's depression, when he despairs of life itself, there are a multitude of things going on. Uh, One is the external reality. He's under threat. Uh, Let's not pretend like somebody hasn't just threatened to kill him. Uh, He is legitimately afraid that he's going to be put to death. And so there is this external reality exerting pressure on Elijah, causing him to be uh, terrified and frightened. But there's also this internal reality that you see. He sort of gives vent to what's going on in his heart. Uh, He says to the Lord, it is enough. Take away my life. I'm no better than my father's. Here's what's going on internally. Elijah feels like a failure. He feels like he hasn't done what God asked him to. He's no better than anybody who came before him. He's fallen into the same mistakes that Israel is still idolatrous despite his best efforts. So externally, he's afraid for his life. Internally, he feels like he's utterly failed God and his people. But, but then there's a, another reality that's at work here, which is biological. Um, he's traveled 120 miles, part of which he's been running. He's probably just literally exhausted. Uh, He's starving. He's hungry. 
So there's the external reality of this threat to his life, the internal sense of failure, the biological reality of his exhaustion setting in, and then there's a relational reality that, that is at war with him. You'll notice he dismissed his servant, and he went a full day's journey by himself into the wilderness. He is entirely alone. From the outside, he's afraid for his life. From the inside, he feels like a failure. Physically, he's exhausted. Relationally, he is entirely isolated. Elijah's depression is, is a whirlwind of realities. That, that last one, though, the, the isolation, I think is probably the cruelest facet of depression. Because as somebody who has wrestled with this reality, uh, who has struggled with this personally, uh, one of the most difficult things about it is that we're so afraid to talk to other people about that, the inner anguish that we're in. Uh, we're so afraid to have that conversation because of sort of the, the social stigma that comes with it. And so we say, I'll mention it once I've made it through. And we isolate ourselves from people so that we are cut off. Now, in a room like this of 40, 45 people, um, I'm not so ignorant as to think that there aren't people in here who have struggled with depression, who are currently struggling with depression, or at some point in your life will feel the force of uh, despair and Elijah's deep-seated anguish. And, and I bring all of this up not to salt the wound, uh, not to cause you uh, to have to relive uh, a painful memory or painful experience from your past, but I, I bring all of this up. I call your attention to this in the text because I want you to see the way that God cares for Elijah even in his darkness. I want you to see how God walks with Elijah even here in the wilderness when he thinks that he is alone. We're told in the text that he lays down under a broom tree and goes to sleep. In verse 5, an angel touched him and said, arise and eat. He looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. Uh, so this phrase angel is, is kind of interesting because it can... It can refer to a lot of different things in the Bible, um, it, much like the phrase Satan. I don't know if you knew this or not, but the phrase Satan, I mean, quite literally just means accuser or adversary. Uh, so sometimes non-horned uh, demons with pitchforks are referred to as Satan. Sometimes people are referred to as Satan in the Bible. And uh, the reason is because the, the name itself just means accuser or adversary. Sometimes the name Satan is applied to a spiritual being that we would call the devil. But sometimes it's just applied to people who are serving as adversaries. This is the same with the term for angel. Now, the term angel literally just means messenger. And so sometimes the term angel is applied to the thing that comes to your mind when you hear that term. Something on stained glass windows or precious moment cards or Charlie Brown Christmas specials or things like that. But other times that term is just used to describe somebody who's a messenger. And the only way that you figure out which is context clues. The reason why I bring this up is because if you see what the word angel actually means, it produces this striking parallel. Uh, if if uh, we're right in this, and we are grammatically, uh, the term angel just means messenger. There's two messengers in this text. Jezebel has sent a messenger to Elijah. And the messenger brings this message of death and despair. And it pushes him to the brink of utter dismay. But after Elijah finds himself in the wilderness, losing the will to live, it's Yahweh's turn to send a messenger. 
And so he sends a messenger, an angel to Elijah who brings bread and water, these foundational symbols of life. Jezebel's message brings death. The message of Yahweh is life. Elijah tries to isolate himself. He dismisses his servant and he walks into the desert. But the Lord won't leave him alone. He won't leave him by himself, even in the midst of this darkness. Um, I've been fairly honest about this. I don't think I'm covering new ground here. But when I, when I first took the job here at the college and career ministry around 2014, um, I, I had always struggled with anxiety to some degree. I'd always struggled with um, some measure of depression. Uh, but something happened in the first five or six months of my experience in this job. Something in me broke. Something snapped. Uh, and my anxiety went into overdrive. Uh, I was not sleeping. Uh, I was perpetually worried about all sorts of catastrophes that I knew in my head didn't make any sense, but I couldn't talk myself out of them. And historically, when I've struggled with anxiety, three or four weeks go by, maybe a month, maybe two months, and it goes away. And so initially, I was like, you know, I've just started a new, I've just started a new job. I'm in a new season of life. It's, it's just all the pressure. This will pass with time. But weeks turned into months, turned into years, and it didn't go away. And the anxiety moved from anxiety to a real deep and dark sort of depression. The sort of thing that I'd never experienced before and really haven't experienced anything like since then. Uh, to the point that like Elijah, I was isolating myself. I would show up to work, I would go home, and I would sit in my bed. Uh, I would sit in my bed until I had to go to work again. And if I could get out of going to work and claim that I was working from home, I would just stay at home in my bed. There, there was a, that was a, one of the darkest seasons in my whole life. And th there was a moment, uh, it was a Sunday night because we used to meet on Sundays. Uh, and we used to meet in the sanctuary of this building. Uh, but we had been exiled from the sanctuary so uh, we were in the loft. We've been permanently exiled now as a ministry. Um, and I showed up to service. Uh, I did not want to be here. I did not want to preach. I did not want to talk to any of you, which may sound unpastoral, but maybe it's more pastoral that I'm being honest with you. And I was sitting in the back of the room during worship, and the, the last thing I wanted to do was stand up here and talk. Um, and I was pretending to look at my notes, but mostly just trying to keep myself together. And for a moment, I, I lost focus on what I was doing, and I heard you all singing. Uh, and it was Corey leading, I think, Come Thou Fount, uh, which is my favorite hymn. And I lost it, like in the back of this room. Uh, like, I, I hopefully did a good job of pretending like I was studying my notes, but I was just like sobbing uncontrollably in the back corner of the loft. Um, and, it, and it wasn't the bad sort of sobbing. Uh, it was... It was the reality of being present among the people of God in the midst of my pain. Uh, the fact that even when everything felt like it was falling apart, I was not alone uh, was something that carried me through that really, really dark season. And I, I say all this because I realize that there's probably people in this room who are struggling with the sort of despair that Elijah feels here in the wilderness. But God does not leave Elijah alone in the wilderness. And if you're in the midst of that sort of darkness, he doesn't mean for you to be alone in it either. Uh, ignoring and withdrawing is not the path to redeeming and restoring. Uh, so can, I, can I plead with you? 
if you're there right now or, or are prone to that, would you please say something to one of us? Uh, would you please say something to leadership? We want to walk with you through that. We want to help you find counseling and encouragement. Because Elijah does not find himself alone even in the wilderness. The Lord sends a messenger. And it's incredible to me that the, that the angel doesn't confront Elijah's despair with pithy Christian sayings. Uh, he doesn't say things like, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Buck up, Elijah. Uh, there, there's no uh, cheesy comments. Actually, the only thing that the angel does is put his or her hand on Elijah's shoulder and say, hey, I've, I've got some bread and water for you. It's this simple act of presence. And so Elijah arises and he eats and he drinks. The angel says, if you don't do this, the journey will be too great for you. And on, uh, in verse 8, we're told that he arose, he ate, and he drank, and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Um, now, something you should understand. Uh, in the ancient world, the same place can be referred to uh, by multiple different names. So, for example, in the modern world, if you said, hey, Travis, where are you? And I said, I'm in the greatest city in the entire world, you would know, of course, that I'm in Tampa. Um, or... Uh, if I said, that's the worst band in the whole world, you would know, of course, that I'm referring to the Beatles. Uh, you don't have to use the same phrase to denote the same reality. Um, greatest city in the whole world, Tampa, synonyms for one another. And on and on we could go. Um, I'm sorry if you like the Beatles. I'm sorry for you if you like the Beatles. <laughs> um, so Horeb is a name that may be unfamiliar to you, but it denotes a location that should be familiar to you. Uh, the language is uh, used as Horeb is the mountain of God. Um, Horeb is actually another name for Mount Sinai. Uh, this is what it had come to be called in Elijah's day. So here's what's happening. Um, Elijah spends 40 days in the wilderness traveling to Mount Sinai, uh, where Moses before him met with God. And now Elijah himself goes to the mountain where God met with the people of Israel and gave the Ten Commandments. So Elijah comes to Mount Sinai. We're told that uh, in verse 9, he came to a cave and he lodged in it. The language in Hebrew is actually he came to the cave and lodged in it. Uh, it's a specific location, which I think implies that he, he went to the same cave that Moses went to. Um, and we're told that, behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what, have you, what are you doing here, Elijah? He responded, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. They seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak. He went out and he stood before the entrance of the cave. So Elijah is on Sinai, and... I love the way that God approaches him and encounters him here um, because he asks something that he already knows the answer to. Elijah, why are you here? And Elijah launches into it. He's probably been rehearsing this speech for like 40 days uh, and, and then the week that it took him to get to this particular location. Um, 
I've done everything you said. I've been jealous for you, but the people are killing your prophets. They're tearing down your altars. I did everything that you said, and they still want to kill me. And what's so astounding here is that as Elijah unleashes all of his complaints, all of his frustrations, God does not crush him. Uh, God does not say, how dare you? He just listens. And then he says, come out of the cave and meet with me. And then this really fascinating thing happens. Um, As the presence of God descends on Sinai to meet with Elijah, as it did 400 years ago to meet with Moses, uh, the ground shakes, and you're told that the presence of God was not in the shaking of the ground. And then uh, as the presence of God continues to pass by, the wind picks up to the point that it's splitting rocks, which I can't even imagine the sort of wind that's going to split some rocks. Uh, This is far beyond hurricane force winds, which we're told that God isn't in the wind either. And then finally, fire descends on the mountain. I have no idea what that looked like. Uh, I don't know if something catches on fire. I don't know if fire is falling from the sky. It, it, something is happening, but God's not in the fire either. And then finally, Elijah hears a voice. The, the literal translation is that he hears the sound of thin silence. And then he steps out to meet with God. So what's, what's interesting about all this is that all of the things that precede Elijah's confrontation with God are ways that God has spoken in the past. He speaks to Job out of a whirlwind. Uh, he uh, descends on Mount Sinai with a, a violent earthquake in Exodus 24. On Mount Carmel, he descended in fire. But here on Mount Sinai, he's not in any of those things. He's not in the fire. He's not in the earthquake. He's not in the wind. Um, Here's why I think that is. Uh, In the midst of his darkness, Elijah does not need the God who answers by fire. He just needs the God who's going to speak to him. And so Elijah encounters God as he needs him, the God who speaks. Um, A number of years ago, I was having a conversation with a friend And he was in the midst of this really strange situation in his life. He said, you know, I I grew up in church. Uh, I was the sort of person who would uh, weep during worship, who who very much felt physically the presence of God, um, moved to tears, raised my hands, all all those sort of things. And none of that's happening for me anymore. I'm not not feeling anything like I used to. Um, And I don't know what that means. I I don't know what's happening there. And in the conversation, I said, I don't presume to know why things are going as they are. Um, but, but maybe that's not what you need right now as much as you think you need that. Or maybe you need to learn how to worship God apart from what you feel, in spite of how you feel, but to, to simply worship God as he is. And I think that there's something to that reality that Elijah encounters on Sinai. Um, The journey of faith is a long one. The Christian life is not a sprint. It is uh, a marathon. And and in many ways, the the Lord knows what we need even when we think that we know better. Uh, So maybe you are in a similar situation uh, where God once answered by fire and now he's answering by whispers. My plea to you would be uh, not to detest that, but to recognize that God knows what we need even if we think that we know better. 
He speaks to Elijah here on Sinai, not in fire as he did on Carmel, but in whispers. And so Elijah launches into his case. God says, why are you here again? Elijah wraps his face in his cloak, which probably looked ridiculous, and he walks out onto the mountain and he says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And God responds to him and says, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you, anoint, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, you shall anoint to be a prophet in your place. The one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall put Jehu put to death. The one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, every mouth that has not kissed him. Um, you know, it's, it's really common when you're having a conversation with somebody to, to hear this accusation put forward. Like, I can get on board with the Sermon on the Mount. I can get on board with the love of Jesus. I can get on board with all of these positive things that you see in the New Testament. But I don't know how to square uh, the angry God of the Old Testament uh, with the loving God of the New Testament. Now, I, I understand why people might be led to, to feel that way. I, I, can, I can see the texts that cause people to, to struggle, but I don't know that that perspective actually survives sustained contact with what the Old Testament really says. Here's what I mean by that. Um, on Mount Sinai, uh, the first time that we encounter this mountain, 400 years prior, uh, the people of Israel begin to worship idols at the foot of it. And we're told that God's anger burns hot against them. And he says, I'm going to wipe all of them out, which is where people get that idea from, right? Moses intercedes on their behalf. He says, you shouldn't do that. These are your people. Be, be patient, be merciful for the sake of your name. And when Moses intercedes for Israel, God shows mercy. He spares them his wrath. We're on Sinai again 400 years later. Moses interceded for Israel. Elijah's accusing Israel. Look at these terrible people. They've killed your prophets. They're worshiping Baal. I don't know what to do about this. Moses is defending Israel. Elijah's prosecuting Israel. And God's response to both is the same. He says, I'll leave 7,000 people who haven't bent the knee to Baal. In spite of everything you've said, I will show them mercy. Whether it's accusation or whether it's intercession, God's response is always mercy to his people, even in the face of their wickedness. Elijah has gone from triumph on Mount Carmel, the God who answers in fire, to despair on Mount Sinai, the God who speaks and whispers. But this is not even the last time that Elijah will meet with God on a mountain. Um, you may notice, if, if you've been around this ministry for a while, um, we're kind of walking this line between being way old school and being vaguely modern. So, like, we have a rock band that plays, kind of. I mean, there's a guitar and electric instruments. Um, but, like, if you were with us last week, we recited the Apostles' Creed, which is, like, 2,000 years old. Uh, we're, we're walking this line between the ancient and the modern, which I think is a good and healthy thing to do. The Lord's teaching us some things now, and he taught us a lot of things back then. But one of the reasons that I, I think it's helpful to, to focus and, and be connected to the great tradition and history of Christianity is that it can, it can draw to our remembrance uh, facets of the Christian life and facets of the Bible that we may have a tendency to forget or overlook. 
One of the things that I think we've lost is the reality of feasting. Like, there was a time in Christian history where Christians actually feasted, and not just when they went to, like, Golden Corral or Sisi's, uh, but they celebrated legitimate events in the history of the church. Um, and one of the feast days, one, one of the, the sacred days that Christians used to celebrate that I think we've lost is uh, the Feast of the Transfiguration. Um, and you may not have even heard of that, but the Transfiguration is this really strange thing that happens in the book of Matthew, in the book of Luke, in the book of Mark. Um, let me just read for you Matthew's account of what happens. In Matthew 17, verse 1, we're told that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, his clothes became white as light, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And when he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Elijah meets with God on Mount Sinai in 1 Kings with his face wrapped in his cloak because he knows that he can't see God and live, because he knows that he can't step into the presence of God with his face uncovered for fear of death. But here in this moment in Matthew's gospel, Elijah's on a different mountain, but his face is uncovered, and he sees the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I think that's intentional as is everything in scripture. Because this passage begins with Elijah seeing the wrath of Jezebel and it causing him to flee in abject terror, to descend into despair because of what he sees. Here in Matthew, in Luke, in Mark, he sees the face of God in the flesh of Christ. How much smaller his fears must have seemed in light of that sight. Elijah's journey doesn't end on Sinai. There's more to Elijah's story. But Elijah's story doesn't even end when he's taken up into heaven in 2 Kings. Elijah's story ends when he sees God in the fullness of the person of Jesus. And that's not just true for Elijah. That's true for you and I as well. That that is the end towards which we run. But for the time being, we have a road ahead of us. There's a gospel to proclaim. There's a kingdom to build. And in the midst of the wilderness of this world, God continues to feed us so that we might make it safely to our home country. We as a ministry take the Lord's Supper every week, believing that it is a way that God meets with us, strengthens us, confirms our faith, draws us to repentance, and gives us the ability to carry on in the face of great difficulty. Uh, so here's what... I would say, if you are a Christian, can I, can I invite you in the words of the messenger that met with Elijah in the wilderness to arise, to eat and drink, for you won't be able to make the journey without it.